Welcome here, Midland Free. My name is Jeremy. I preach here. It's nice to meet you. If you've been with us for a while, you know that uh, throughout the summer we've been going through the book of Mark, and uh, we've just got a couple weeks left, and then we'll be switching series for the fall, and I'm excited about that as well. That's the Revelation, the seven churches we're going to talk about, specifically what is Jesus' word to the church. We're a church. We love Jesus. We want to hear from him, so what does he have to say to us? That's this fall. For today, we're going to continue in the last couple weeks of the uh, Encounter the Incredible series. I want to start off with a question, and feel free to be honest. This is church, so I hope you are, but you can be honest outside of church too, you know. Um, My question is this. Do we have any dog lovers in the house? Any dog lovers? Okay, got some dog lovers. Now, I'm going to get a little more specific. My preaching coach tells me, be specific. Let's be specific. Ready? Do we have any Dalmatian lovers in the house? Anybody who's like, man, I love this breed. Okay, sorry. All right, just saying. Um, I grew up in a house full of animals. It was like a zoo. We had dogs. We had cats. We had birds. We had fish. And we had, it was either guinea pigs or hamsters or some little rodent. I don't remember which. Lots of animals in our house. Eventually, the cat did get the bird, but the dogs never got the cat, and the fish, well, the fish went where fish go. But I did have, out of all those animals, one that I particularly loved. His name was George, and he was a dog. He was a German shepherd and uh, husky mix. And he was, ended up basically being my dog. He was a wonderful animal. I loved him a lot. And we spent a lot of time together. He kind of went through junior high, high and high school with me so I could go back and discuss all my problems that I was having and everything. And boy, George, he just listened. He's like, I'm like, man, you are a good friend, man. And what I also liked about George is George was actually pretty smart. So we could teach him things so we could, you know, walk. And if I stopped, he'd sit down. And if I, I could actually get to the place where he, he not only knew specific commands, but he understood, I think, my tone of voice and everything else, so I could give him a frown and he'd stop and look at me, or I could smile and he'd affirm it, or I could set a piece of meat down on the ground in front of him, and I could say, George, hang on. And he'd stop and he'd look at me, and then I'd say, okay, George, go ahead, and eat the meat. On the other hand, we had this dog by the name of Spot, and Spot was the Dalmatian, exactly right. And Spot was the total opposite. He was a horrible dog. I mean, he was terrible. He would bark in the middle of the night. He tore everything up. I don't know if he got, it was overbreeding or what, but he was just as dumb as a rock. He was huge. And it wasn't just like you set a piece of meat on the ground and he would not go get it. It was like if there was anything on the table, he would climb on top of it. I mean, he was awful. Nothing worked on that dog. Eventually he got arthritis, had some other issues, and had to be put down. And I was not in mourning. <laughs> but George was a different story. I love George. He would do anything for me. He would take on a pack of wild wolves and still be my dog. And I think the big difference there between George and Spot was this, is George really knew who the master was. George knew how to submit. George knew how to obey Today we're looking at Mark chapter 2, verses 23 and following, 
And what we're going to see is the difference between a good disciple and a bad one, good dog and a bad dog, is if you know who the master is, if you're able to submit and obey. Today's theme is that we, as followers of Christ, should submit to Jesus. We're going to see that in three parts in today's passage. Here's an outline slide of that, which gives you our steps for today. We are to submit to Jesus. Uh, The problem with submitting, what makes it difficult, is that we have hard hearts. Uh, The solution to those hard hearts is to repent and submit. And then at the end, we're going to say, well, what does that look like today? What does that look like in real life? So submit to Jesus. The obstacle problem issue is hard hearts. The solution is submission. And what does that look like? Mark chapter 2, beginning verse 23. Hope you have a Bible so you can follow along. Uh, That's why you're sitting down, so you can read it and get into it. Um, but if you don't, feel free to uh, follow along on the screen. There's also some blue Bibles in the back that we'd love to loan you. And if you don't have any Bible in your possession at all, please take one home as our gift. Mark chapter 2, verse 23, it says this. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look. Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was not made for man, was, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Then continuing this Sabbath controversy, there's a more specific incident. He entered the synagogue, as was his custom, and there was a man with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Jesus said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he And Jesus then changed his addressee and said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? Here's a case study right in front of you. And they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger and grieved at the hardness of the heart, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Pharisees went out immediately, held counsel with the Herodians against him to see how they might obliterate, pulverize, absolutely, completely destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what does this say about Sabbath keeping? Some of the guys in the room are perhaps looking over at their wives at this point and saying, Aha! Listen up, honey. This will finally solve the debate on whether it's okay for me to mow on Sundays or not. This sermon is for you. And if you're saying that, this sermon is for you. Actually, this sermon is not at all in any way whatsoever actually about Sabbath keeping It's not whether or not you can mow on Sunday. That's what the Pharisees want you to think about the minutia and specifics and details 
and finer points of the law. They think that's the big deal, but Jesus is not about that. Instead, what he's talking about here is who's the boss? Who's in charge? This is about Jesus' authority and our submission to it. And that is the underlying tension that has been progressively escalating throughout this entire narrative. Through this story, there's been an under-the-surface conflict going on. You know how that is in your life when there's somebody, there's something a little off with, and you're just like, and eventually something causes it just to go boom, and there it is, and everything comes out. That's what this story is today. There's been this under-the-surface, back-and-forth, power thing going on between Jesus and the religious authorities, and now it's come to head and it's about to burst. The issue is not Sabbath keeping. The issue is Jesus' authority. Previously, they tried to catch him on the topic of fasting when Jesus answers their question and just says, follow me. That was last week. Now, today, They're asking about the Sabbath. And again, the point is not to figure out what the law actually says. They think they've got that covered. The point is to catch Jesus, to trip him up and trap him, to stop him dead in his tracks. So what they do, as you've probably experienced before, is that question, which is not really a question, but it's actually an accusation hidden or buried in terms of a question. So they can say, hey, just ask a question. (laughs) Actually, it's not a question. (laughs) And they say, um, why are you breaking the Sabbath laws? Presupposition, you're breaking them. Accusation. And what they're doing is they're, they're attacking him on a legal issue. And so Jesus is way too smart to fall for their traps. As you know, he always steps out of those. But what's interesting is how he addresses this one from two different perspectives. One is the legal perspective. On the first Um, accusation, he'll say, okay, you want to talk law? Let's talk law. Let me give you a precedent. Law is based on precedent, what's gone uh, before us. And so I'm going to give you an example that's established, credible, and acceptable according to you, and then we'll see what you think. But then after that, he's going to push it one step forward further and say, okay, now that we've established that, let's talk about how this looks in your life. How does this apply to your heart? So Jesus begins with this issue of breaking the law, and that's important for us because if Jesus had really broken the law, then he couldn't be our lamb, he couldn't be our sacrifice, he really wouldn't be the son of God who fulfilled all righteousness. Jesus is not playing fast and loose with the law just because he can. Jesus is, in fact, keeping the law. If you go back into the law, we won't do so today, what the law actually says is using a sickle to harvest grain. So in other words, if Jesus was out there using the sickle, to harvest grain, then he would have been breaking the law. See, you can't mow on Saturday. Just kidding. (laughs) Here's the thing. Jesus is picking as he goes along, so are his disciples, and you actually find in Deuteronomy that that's okay. It wasn't considered stealing. It's just part of living in a communal society where if you were to go and harvest the grain, that's theft, but you're a little hungry, borrowing from your brother, according to this, it's no big deal. So he's not breaking the law. But He's not going to jump into the minutia. He's not going to go after the technical aspects because he knows the technical aspects is not the issue. Instead, what he's going to do, instead of pointing to the technicalities, listen carefully, the precedent points 
to the person. The precedent is going to point to the person. I'll show you what that means here in just a second. What Jesus does is he, he references this guy by the name of David, who happens to be the ultimate king of Israel, at least the first one. So Jesus points to David and he says, you know the story. If you're as smart and well-read as you say you are, which is funny, he often says that to his accusers. Oh, have you not read? <laughs> supposedly they had read everything. Then he reminds them of what they supposedly read. He says, have you not read? You know, look what David did. Here's what David did. I've got a few pictures for you, kiddos. Heads up. You like pictures? Here's some. Uh, we're going to the tabernacle today. This is this sort of moving tent that led the children of Israel across the um, Sinai Peninsula. And you can see the cloud, which represents the presence of God. All of the priests are inside. Everyone else is excluded. There's this purple thing, which is the gate. You go in through the gate, and the first thing you see as soon as you come in is the bronze altar. You're going to see this altar there where there's got to be a sacrifice made. You can't even get close to God without repenting. Altar, right away, first thing you see. But then once you sacrifice your animal, you're going to be all bloody and messy. So the next thing you have to do is go forward to the bronze laver. That bronze laver is where you will wash and cleanse yourself after that. And you're pretty much done there. But the priest can enter into the, uh, the tabernacle tent. Now, there's, this is the tent itself, but there's two rooms inside that tent. There is the holy place, which is the first room. And then there's the most holy place, which you see the arrow pointing to right here, which is the second room. This is the place that the high priest only goes to one time a year after extensive and elaborate rituals. And he actually even wears like bells on his clothing so that if there's any sin in his life, he will die and the people won't hear the bells jingling anymore. That's their signal to pull him out by the rope that's tied to him. So no one's going into that Holy of Holies. That would be crazy. But where David goes is actually in the room right before that, the holy place. So there's the holy place and the most holy place. Think, here's the holy place. And inside the holy place, you'll actually see some, one thing that probably looks familiar to you. That is this item of furniture called the golden lampstand. It looks like a candelabra. Uh, some people today call it a menorah. It's got uh, all these different lights on it representing uh, the people of Israel. And you so it burns continually before the Lord. And then, after that, you see this other thing called the altar of incense. And it's going to be burning incense, which sort of cloaks the veil. So it keeps God's holiness separate in addition to the veil. And it's like prayers going up before him day and night. And then you see this other thing called the table of showbread. And on that table, you'll see that there are 12 loaves, each representing the children of Israel. Not loaves like you think of bread. This is unleavened bread. But this is the uh, representation of the tribes of Israel. And the priests are allowed to eat that. So what happens is, is when David is running from Saul and he's hiding in the wilderness, he'll be up in the rocks, something like this. And he's starving because this place has nothing to eat. There's no game. There's nothing you can kill. He's in trouble. And he knows that the only way he can survive is if he sneaks down into this holy place, which only the priests are allowed to go into, and steals the bread and hands it out to his men. 
And so David does, does that, and that is considered okay. So what happens here is that Jesus is pointing to this Old Testament incident, and he says, hey, here's a precedent, this precedent based on this person, this person who you say is the greatest king of Israel ever, and look what he did. He did something worse than picking a few heads of grain. He actually went into the holy place and stole, if you will, the bread of the presence. Uh, the bread of the presence. So the Pharisees have no answer. They're like, yeah, that's true. We, we affirm that. That's right. David did that. So what are you saying, Jesus? Well, here's the thing. Don't miss this. Jesus is not pointing to the technicalities of the law. He's pointing to the person. Remember last week, don't follow the process. Don't follow the... Uh, but instead, follow the person. Look, Jesus is pointing to David... David went out in the wilderness and was confronted by his enemies. And what did David do? He went into the holy place, ate the bread of the present. Jesus will go out, actually already did go out in the wilderness, was confronted by his enemies. And what can he do? He goes in not only to the holy place, but he goes into the holy of holies before the very throne of God. Jesus is the greater David. The real Messiah is here. I'm not going to talk to you about the specifics of the law. Let's talk about the person of the Messiah himself. You guys are missing the very point, and he's standing right in front of you. Here is the very Lamb of God. So there is Jesus, the greater David. He's standing before them. They're missing it, and he's going to make two other points. Uh, The first is the lesser, and this is really the one that will answer sort of your mowing question. Um, He says this in verse 27. He says, the Sabbath was not, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the law is meant to be a benefit, not a bludgeon. It is not something that you're to hit people over the head with and, and, you know, require them to conform Instead, what it is, is it's to bless humanity. So when you look at the Old Testament, you see this law, but it's really the thing that is preserving Israel as a people group, allowing them to be blessed and leading them to, be, to God. So it's a good thing, not a bad thing. Moreover, if you look at um, creative order, so here's the answer to your mowing question. Uh, first of all, Sunday, today, is not a Sabbath. Yesterday, Saturday, is technically the Jewish Sabbath, so none of us are here keeping the Sabbath today. Moreover, there's ten commandments. The Sabbath is not repeated in the New Testament, so I don't believe it's a binding command for New Testament believers, keeping the Sabbath. I think anyone who imposes on that on you is being legalistic, and it's not a requirement. That said, what Jesus does affirm, though, is creative order. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, male and female. In the beginning, God worked, and then he rested. So what God is saying is that even though the the technicality of your Sabbath keeping doesn't have to be specific, there should be a regular rhythm of rest and worship. You should have a regular rhythm of sacred time. You need to stop from your labor. Even God himself, who did not need rest, decided to, because it was good. 
So to be patterned after your original purpose to follow the creative order, you need rest. Moreover, when you rest, you're showing that you believe in God. Could you work more? Perhaps so. Would it give you the chance to make more money? Perhaps so. But what you're doing is you're saying, I stop and I trust God to provide for me tomorrow. So much so that I'm not going to do anything about it today. I'm just going to rest in Him and believe that He will. None of the other nations around Israel could do that, especially if they're agrarian. They're like, hey, if the sun, make hay while the sun's shining. You know, look, today's the opportunity. We got to cut the grass. (laughs) But Israel says, no, we're going to believe by grace through faith that God will provide, and so we will rest. So, in other words, if you're not taking rest, that means you're out of rhythm. You're offbeat. You're out of whack. The rhythm is work, then rest. Work, then rest. That's the way God ordered things. So, is it a legalistic requirement? No. I want my doctor to be at the ER today in case we have an issue. Okay? He's going to work today. Guess what I'm doing? I'm working. (laughs) This is not easy. It starts early and it ends late. This is my biggest day of the week. It's like a football player, only I don't get paid as much or nor am I as good looking. (laughs) This is my work day. This is the biggest one of the week. Tomorrow I'm tired. (laughs) But God wants you to rest. Work than rest. So that's the lesser point. The greater point is in verse 28. That's verse 27. The greater point is this. So the Son of Man is Lord. There's the point. You guys are totally missing the point. Pharisees, people, folks everywhere. The point is, Jesus is Lord. It's not how much grain you pick or when you pick it. The point is, Jesus is the Lord. Listen carefully. Listen up. Here you go. Ready? The real clash is not over the rules, but over who rules. Do you hear that? The real clash is not over the rules, but over who rules. And all of us, each and every one of us, definitely myself included, struggle with this. All of us have this struggle in our lives. It's not just those hypocrites, those bad guys, those Pharisees. It's you and it's me. We all struggle with Jesus' authority in our lives. There is definitely some area in your life that you have not fully submitted to him. And if he walked up to you today, he'd probably go, there it is. Right there. You know what it is. I don't. Jesus does. As Americans, it's really hard to sort of be in that space because the way in which we operate is through a democratic system. We expect our right, our vote, our voice, our say, our opinion, our everything. Me first, customer service, get here on time. Why are you late? There goes your tip. Hurry up. But the reality is, Jesus is not a representative. He is a ruler. Jesus is not an elected official. His authority doesn't change out after a season. It doesn't alternate depending on which state or country you're living in. He is the universal, independent, sovereign king and God. His agenda does not change dependent upon his standing in the polls. His agenda 
does not change dependent upon the consequences to himself. Either way, it's all the same. And he presumes preeminence and requires absolute submission. Look at how this plays out in the book of Mark. Over and over again, each of these passages, same issue. Why are there so many confrontations in the gospel? It's to demonstrate Jesus' authority. The first one against Satan himself, his arch nemesis. The devil comes up and tries to tempt Jesus three times over and over again. Eventually, Jesus is just like, get out of here. Get lost. And Satan flees. To the demons, Jesus says, get out. And they're gone. To the disease, Jesus says, be clean. They're clean. To the paralytic, Jesus says, get up. And they get up. To the man with the shriveled hand, Jesus says, stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. Jesus speaks and it happens. His word is so authoritative that the very world itself came into being when he spoke. It is. He commands and people obey. Nobody has this kind of authority. Even the most authoritarian dictator in the entire world cannot rule with the authority of Christ. Have you ever encountered anything like this? This is incredible. Did you get that? That sort of play to the series title? All right, good. We're there. So what's the issue? Well, the issue is this. Issue is the hard hearts. The hard hearts of these folks. And what's funny is, the way we like the, you know, fluffy, Christianized Jesus, we say, oh, Jesus, he brings out the best in people. He's, he's just so nice and fluffy. He's like a little bunny. You know what else he does? He brings out the worst in people. Jesus brings out the best in people and the very worst in people. When light burst into the darkness, the shadow is huge. And there is the light right in front of them, and these people are clearly against it. Verse 2 of chapter 3 says they, they watched, in, in my translation, the idea is lying in wait. They're sitting there like this, ready to pounce, like, Pah! we're going to get him, just watch this, we're going to kill him. Then in verse 6, it says they went out to destroy him. The word destroy is like obliterate, like annihilate, like nuclear weapon, just vaporize the guy. They're not interested in putting him in jail. They want to kill him at this point. And he's got a long long way to go in his ministry. You think your working environment is tough. (laughs) They really do want to kill him. They just don't want his job. They don't want to undercut him. They don't want to talk bad about him. They want to kill him. And Jesus has to deal with this now for the entire rest of his ministry, starting at the very beginning. They want to obliterate this guy. And let me show you what's so cool about this. This is what's crazy. Look, if you got an enemy You've got someone you're worried about in your life. Who is that person? Don't say it. (laughs) Maybe they're sitting next to you. Maybe they're not. (laughs) Hopefully not. you got someone in your life, you're like, oh, this person. You know, and you're thinking about them, and they probably consume your thoughts all the time. First thing that comes up when you get frustrated is their name. Boom. You have an enemy. I doubt. Now, it's possible. I don't know your situation. Maybe there is someone out here that has an enemy that, is genuinely trying to kill you. If, not, if so, you know, go to the authorities, take care of it, do what's right. But here, I, I doubt that most of our enemies are actually that intense. 
And what would you expect here? If someone's that intense, they're out to kill Jesus. What's he going to do? Boy, he better start planning. He better shore up his ends. He better tighten up his allegiances. He better... He doesn't even care. The issue here is not the people who are trying to kill him. That's not what he's upset about. What's he upset about? The hardness of their hearts. Listen, church, this is huge. Your greatest enemy isn't your enemy. You know what your greatest enemy is? Right here. It's not that far outside of you. In fact, it's inside of you. The greatest thing you have to fear is not fear, but it's yourself. It's your own heart. God can take care of your enemies. Don't worry about that. But you need to work, worry about your heart. How is your heart before him? Are you submitting to his authority in your life? You're all worried about them. They're not the issue. <laughs> God take care of them. You take care of you. I need to take care of me. The greatest enemy is not the opposition. The greatest enemy is the hardness of our hearts. What's the solution? Well, the solution is to submit. The solution is to submit, to humble yourselves, repent and repent and repent some more. Hear the voice of the one crying in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Submit yourselves to he who is mightier, the strap of whose sandals we are unworthy to untie. The problem is the hardness of hearts, and it's not their issue, it's ours, mine, yours. The solution is to submit to Jesus' authority in every area of your life, in your finances, in your spare time, in your desires, in your obsessions, in your thoughts. In the application, well, what does that look like? Well, there's one lady who shows us really, really well. There's one woman who perhaps shows us better than anyone else what submission to Jesus looks like. She's found in Mark chapter 7, just a little bit further, verse 24. She's a Syrophoenician, so she's not even Jewish. She's definitely not a Pharisee. <laughs> she's the furthest thing from a Pharisee. I mean, she is like hated by the Pharisees. So here's this Syrophoenician woman and says that Jesus was in the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and he, he's trying to get away from it all and he didn't want anyone to know that he was there, yet... He couldn't be hidden. Immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. There's your picture of submission. <laughs> it's not standing, pointing the finger, questioning. It's falling at his feet. And the woman was a Gentile, of all things. A Syrophoenician, even worse. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And listen to what Jesus says to her. Is it warm, fuzzy bunny? Not exactly. He says to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. Whoa, you, Jesus, you just said that? And she answered him, I'm not a dog, what are you talking about? You want some... No. What did she say? Yes, Lord. Yet, even the dogs... Here's a good dog, by the way. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. 
And he said to her, ah, there it is. For this statement, you may go your way, and the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. That's submission. When you fall at the master's feet and he gives this dramatic, almost offensive command and you say, yes, sir. You're right. I submit. Are you willing to put yourself in that place? Willing to drop at Jesus' feet and just say, okay. First shall be last. Last shall be first. Meek will inherit the earth. You're the only superhero. It's not me. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I'm not going to look for technicalities or exceptions or ways to prove I'm right or arguments against the other. I'm going to look straight at myself. So this is where the real battle begins. Right here. In the heart. The problem is that we have hard hearts. The solution is to repent and submit. And what's that look like? George or the Syrophoenician woman, even better. Are you willing to let Jesus take care of you? Are you willing to sit at his feet and wait? Are you going to jump up on the table and try to take whatever you can? Repent. Believe. Submit. Question is not the technicality of the law. The question is, who is Lord? Father, we thank you for your only son, Jesus, the supreme God of the universe, the ruler over all. Lord, we say that so glibly. We're like, yeah, let's, let's lift our hands and worship. And we've got so many areas in our lives where they, that may not be the case. Where other things come before him, we know it's not right. And we pray that you would just convict us and do so deeply. Help us to look inside. Not fear others, but fear ourselves. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace, which even keeps us in the game. And Lord, we ask as we go forward this week that you would show us specifically between now and next Sunday what that means for us. Lord, help us to submit to you. In Jesus' name, amen.